Hey, this is Steve with Life Worth Living. Now I've been looking at Isaiah chapter 10, and uh, quite frankly, it's kind of hard to start uh, really understanding or even capturing my attention. But there is a theme in here that has absolutely revolutionized the way that um, I'm seeing God and understanding God and, and understanding certain aspects of God. And so I'm really excited to share this with you. And we're really going to look today at this question, is it comforting to know that God gets angry? Is it comforting to know that God gets angry? I, I'll tell you what, whenever I read the Bible, whenever I think of God, I don't like to read or think about the fact that he gets angry. Um, but this, these, these verses here in Isaiah 10 have really helped me in that regard and gotten me to the place where I am comforted that God gets angry. So let me share this with you. We're going to start off in verse 1. Uh, of, of Isaiah 10 and it starts this way it says woe to those who make unjust laws and uh, whenever you look at the word woe um, you know <laughs> I, I think you know wherever I tell my kids whoa 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 hold on a second that means slow down but in the Bible whenever uh, God or prophet said woe to someone it meant great sorrow to that person great distress to that person and um and this is saying here woe in other words great distress great sorrow to those who make unjust laws and i got to thinking what what is an unjust law well it's really a man-made law and a selfish law a law that's meant to really only benefit a few and harm the, the remainder of the, the population. And so it's saying here, great sorrow and great distress to make to those who make up their own rules and laws. And it got me to thinking, you know what? If you make up your own rules, you're making up your own God. Because a lot of people say, hey, you know, I think God is this way. Well, I think of God as a loving God. I think of God as not a punishing God, or I think of God as an angry God. And you know what? You can think of God however you want to. God is who he says he is, period, end of story. There's no discussions from that point forward. There's a very, very intelligent man in our history, especially in the history of our nation, Ben Franklin, who decided he was going to make up 13 laws or 13 necessary virtues and I won't bore you with with and actually it's not boring but I won't mention the 13 in total because they're most of them are good and would generally be agreed to by the you know by most people but I find interesting the 12th virtue that he came up with um, and he would he would title the virtue and then describe it. So the, the 12th virtue that Ben Franklin came up with was chastity. And he described chastity as rarely, rarely using venery. All right. Rarely using venery. And it goes on and gives a little bit more of a description. But I, I looked up the word venery to make sure that I understood what it meant. And venery ba basically is a extramarital affair and so his his uh, virtue was to rarely use venery <laughs> rarely don't have too many extramarital affairs 
that was that was Ben Franklin's uh, uh, made up rule. And in doing so, Ben Franklin essentially made up his own God by making up his own rules. Well, we can't do that. There's one God and one God alone. He is who he says he is. His rules are what he says they are. And there's no discussion. There's no, there's no negotiating it. He's our creator. He's our savior. He's our God. And he comes up with his own rules. And those are the rules that we need to follow. And by the way, God's rules are not meant to simply be overbearing and ruin our lives or limit our lives. They're there to keep us from harming ourselves. You look at any rule that God has ever given us in the Bible, and its in, its intention is a loving protection of us. But let's read on in Isaiah 10. I've only gotten through half of one verse. Don't worry, we'll go a little faster through the rest of these. But it says again, Woe to those who make up unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. Verse 2, To deprive the poor of their rights, to withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? Does God let things go? Or is there a day when we'll all have to give an account, a day of reckoning for the unforgiven things that we've done in our lives? You know, I submit to you based on what the Bible tells us that there will be a day of reckoning where we have to give an account for the unforgiven things that we've done in our lives. And that leads me to ask another question. Does God's grace end at some point? It certainly does. If you look at James 6, excuse me, 4, verse 6, the author of James says, He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So yes, there is a limit and an end to God's grace, and it ends with those who are prideful, those who don't humble themselves, those who believe they know all there is to know and don't need to be told what to do or what not to do. There's, no, there's none of God's grace available to the pride, prideful person. Now, it's interesting, our sin is not what causes God's grace to stop. As I've mentioned, it's our pride. But oftentimes, we as Christians or as aspiring Christians, people who are godly or want to be godly, we think that our sin, our shortfalls, our shortcomings, our, our faults are what keeps God's grace from reaching us. But that's not the case at all. It's our pride that keeps us from God's grace. Romans 5.20, it says in the Amplified Version, it says, But where sin increased, God's remarkable, gracious gift of grace, His unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased all the more. God's grace surpasses our sin. It's higher than our sin. It's deeper than our sin. It's wider than our sin. It's broader than our sin. God's grace surpasses our sin but it does not surpass our pride. The Bible says he opposes the pride, the pride, or the prideful, or the proud. All right? And what is opposition from God? It's his anger. And we're getting to that, that topic here in just a second. It goes on in Isaiah chapter 10. I think we're now in verse 3. To whom will you run for help? 
Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives and fall among the slain. Yet for all of this, his anger, that's God's anger, is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And here's the theme of, of the message today, of, of, of our talk today. The question, does God get angry? When does God get angry? And what causes God to get angry? And at some point, do we as humans actually want God to get angry and wish that he would get angry? And then a final question is, has God ever been angry with me personally? Well, all of these questions are relatively answered in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And let, let me read this, this scripture to you again. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, it says, But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodless, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but wrath means anger. So it says the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And I began to dig into the meaning of these two things that causes God's anger to, to come about. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is bold irreverence against God refusing to give him honor or credit that's due him. That's ungodliness. Now, unrighteousness is depriving people of justice. It's the epitome of an evildoer. It's someone with wicked intent to harm. Now, so it's saying God's anger is against those two things, irreverent, uh, irrever irreverence towards God and intent to evil or wicked intent to harm God is angry about those two things we read on in Romans 1 now in verse 19 for what can be known about God is plain to them plain, plain to us because God has shown it to them for his invisible uh, attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. All the things that we see, all the things that we admire about this world, about this earth, about the universe, are, are explicit in, in expressing that God exists, that he's powerful, his divine nature, his eternal power. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't appreciate him. For they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things, or in other words, created things. So what makes God angry? Remember the questions we were asking ourselves? Bold irreverence, especially bold irreverence against God in front of other people. Here's another one, refusing to honor God, trying to take credit for yourself for all the good things that have happened to you, depriving others of justice. In other words, targeting others by verbally abusing them or emotional or even physical abuse. God gets angry when a spouse abuses his or her spouse and their children. God 
gets angry. His wrath is coming out against that person. Or wicked intent makes God very angry. Letting evil drive your decisions. That makes God mad. Knowing God but not recognizing or appreciating Him. Never even thinking about God. The Bible says that the thoughts of wicked men, there's no room for God in the thoughts of a wicked person. So if you were to add up all your thoughts and put it into, say, a pie chart, how much of a sliver of that pie chart would would be allocated for thoughts towards God? I hope that it's an ever-growing percentage of your thoughts uh, are, are, are towards God. What else makes God angry? Knowing God but not recognizing or appreciating Him. Never even thinking about Him as we've mentioned. Claiming to be wise. In other words, being a know-it-all. Have you ever have you ever been around someone who's a know-it-all? You, they get on your nerves. Guess what? That person also gets on God's nerves and produces anger with God. And then of course, exchanging God's glory for something else. Deciding that you want man's praise instead of God's praise. These things make God angry. Let me ask you a question and think about this. Does God have the right to be angry about these things? Here's another question. Do we want God's anger to be triggered by these things? And do I fit in any of these descriptions? Which is a soul-searching question that we certainly should try to answer for ourselves. Well, let me, let me take a little bit of a sidebar here, just really quick, and ask a different question from a different angle. Is God angry with the person who's struggling with sin, but whose heart is trying to get closer to God? And I would say unequivocally, no, God is not angry with the person who's searching and seeking God and tripping all along the way, falling flat on their face, failing miserably. No. God is not angry with that person. In fact, that's what God's grace is for, to forgive, to free the helpless. God is not angry with you when you're helpless. He loves you. Now, there's this cliche (laughs) that people often attribute to the Bible. It's found nowhere in the Bible, either, either as a verse, as a scripture, or even conceptually found in the Bible. And it's this. People claim it all the time. God helps those who help themselves. There's no, there's nowhere in the Bible that uh, that you would find this statement anywhere. In fact, the Bible says quite the opposite. God helps those who can't help themselves. He's not angry with you if you're helpless. He's not angry with you if you're trying to do the right thing but can't seem to do it. His grace is there to help you. There's no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus, even if you're imperfect, which we all are. And that gets me to another point, another little bit of a rabbit hole, if you don't mind. But by the way, God's discipline is not punishment. In fact, God's discipline is a form and evidence of his love for you personally. Let's look at Hebrews 12, just super quick. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11, where God tells us, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what child is not disciplined by their father? And if you're not disciplined, and everyone does undergo discipline, then you're not legitimate. 
You're not true sons and daughters of God. Moreover, we all have had fathers, human fathers, who disciplined us, and we respected them for that. But how much more if we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained in it. So, when you're going through a hard time, don't think, oh no, God is punishing me, God is angry with me. No, that hardship as a child or daughter, son or daughter of God, is Him loving you and helping you to grow up, to be strengthened. So stick with God through through thick and thin. Don't think He's punishing you. But let's continue on. Is it comforting to us that God gets angry? Let's continue to look at this question. In verse 5, going back to Isaiah 10, the Bible says, Woe to Assyrian, to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. Make no mistake about it. God does use events and circumstances to demonstrate his anger against willful godliness, godlessness of people. He does use, I mean, events in history, you can look back and say that was catastrophic to that country or to that empire. Yes, God does use events and circumstances to express his anger against mankind. In verse 6, he says, I send him against a godless, godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch, snatch plunder, to trample them like mud in the streets. But this is not what I intended. This is not what he had in mind. His purpose was to destroy. In other words, God is saying, I was going to use the Assyrians to punish his people in Judah and Israel who were faithless to him. But then the Assyrian emperor got the impression that he was there to completely destroy them. And that word destroy is such a terrible word. In fact, the Bible speaks of Satan as the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But you know what Jesus says about himself? Jesus has come that we might have life and life in abundance. He trumps. He trumps what Satan intended to do. And stealing and killing and destroying says, no, I'm going to give you life and life in abundance. So here, here's the thing. Um, I'm going to read down in verse 11, skip a couple of verses here in Isaiah 10. It says, shall I not deal with Jerusalem, Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? What is an idol? What is an idol? And does do idols make God angry? I would venture to say absolutely from everything that we can tell in the Bible, idolatry makes God angry. God is tired of things that replace him in our lives. He's tired when our careers replace him or our girlfriend or boyfriend replaces God in our hearts and our lives. He's He's tired of when grudges take front and center in our emotions or excuses or religiosity. I'll tell you what, religiosity is one of the biggest enemies of a Christian. When you here's what religi- religiosity is by the way, it's when the externals are more important to you than the internals. 
It's more important to you what other people think about you than what God thinks about you. You might go to church and put on a good front. You might put on a good front even at work. And then you go home and your family knows the real you, the abusive you, the angry you, the negligent you, the you who comes and sits down on the couch and won't spend a minute with your children or won't help your wife with the dishes or cleaning the house. That's the you that God is concerned with. Religiosity is extremely dangerous. But God is tired when distractions replace him in our lives or self-promotion, vanity, or materialism replaces him in our lives. So we read on in verse 12 of Isaiah 10, When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, that was that was the, the, the Jewish nation at that time, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his life, of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Notice God didn't say, I'm going to discipline the king of Assyria. No, he said, I am going to punish him. That means God's wrath, his anger was going to be expressed to the king of Assyria in a way that would be very, very painful to him. All right, well, let's, I, I'm not going to read all, all of these, the, the rest of these verses, except to say this and to answer this question. Is it comforting that God gets angry? And I would say yes to me personally, and I hope to you as well. I am so thankful that God gets angry. He gets angry when someone's bullied or abused. He gets angry with prideful, arrogant people or boldly irreverent people. He gets angry when those who are helpless are oppressed. He gets angry with people who, who always take praise and never give God the praise. So yes, I speak for myself and I hope for you as well. Yes, I am so comforted that God gets angry. It's very comforting as well that God has the other side of him who gives grace and favors the humble. He goes for the underdog. He goes for the person who who might not have the credentials or the degree or the person who may not have the experience. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give you that position instead of all those other people who had better qualifications. He goes for the underdog. You look at you look at all the the people who shock us. I think of I'll give an example. I like to watch soccer, and uh, and there's a a guy that used to play uh, for Barcelona. They're in Spain. A famous soccer player, Messi, and you know what? Messi was undersized. He's short. He doesn't weigh much. But you know what? God said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna take the underdog and I'm gonna make him someone famous and amazing." That's exactly what he does. He takes the small, the insignificant and promotes them and blesses them. Well, just to end here in Psalms 32, verses 1 through 2, listen to this verse. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Not, not blessed is the one who never fails, who never sins, who is perfect. No, no, it says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is, is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Wow. <clears throat> We've been talking about God's anger. Now we're talking about God's blessing. God's favor is with a person who comes to Jesus and says, Please forgive me. 
I've done wrong. I've failed. I've fallen short. I keep messing up over and over again. The Bible says that person is going to be blessed and favored because their sins are not counted against them. It says in 1 John 2 verse 1, it says, But if anyone does sin, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, just to think about this just blesses me beyond all measure. I've always thought that on the day of judgment, judgment, the day of reckoning, that I'm going to be standing before God. The spotlight of the universe is going to be shining on me. Billions upon billions, maybe even trillions upon trillions of people will be in the grandstands awaiting their turn. But I'm going to be alone standing before God. And the Bible says I'm going to have to give an account for what I've done. And I've always thought I'm going to be standing there alone, but I'm realizing more and more that that's not the case. Jesus is going to stand right beside me, and he's going to speak on my my behalf just as a defense attorney would speak on some criminal's behalf. I'm not going to have to say much of anything because Jesus is going to speak for me. Because it says here in 1 John 2, 1, but if anyone does sin, which we all do, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that amazing? I'm so thankful God's anger is expressed towards wickedness, but I'm so thankful his favor is expressed towards those who humbly come before him and say, Jesus, I have sinned. I've messed up. And and he, he, it goes on to say here, this is amazing, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, the one who says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. In other words, he's not going to leave us or forsake us while we're alive. He's not going to leave us or forsake us on the day of judgment or the day of reckoning. And he's not going to leave us for all eternity as long as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Would you pray with me right now? Just friend to friend. Right now, I'm going to pray for you and with you, but I'd like you to pray with me as well and say, Jesus, I've done so many wrong things. I've fallen short so many times. Lord, your word says, blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are not counted against them whose sins are not even remembered by God anymore. Lord, would you please forgive me of my sins? I repent. I confess to you that I've done wrong, that I've fallen short. I need your help for this bad habit, this addiction that I have, or, or this bad attitude that I tend to always fall into. I, I feel bad that I don't spend time with my wife, my family, or my husband, my family the way that I should. Jesus, please help me. Please forgive me. Jesus, would you please never leave me and never forsake me and commit to me, Lord Jesus, that you will stand before, stand with me before your Father on the day of reckoning and stand in my defense as my advocate. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. God richly bless you. Thank you.